So just what is it like having a seat at the table and helping to lead a Power 5 conference in what can be safely said as challenging times in a lot of different respects? Well, our special guest this week has that very answer. And oh, by the way, he's a Stanford guy. A chat with him is coming up in just a few minutes. But first, some formalities. We got to introduce the show. It's the TreeCast with Troy Clarity, presented by the Believe Podcast Network for Wednesday, June 17th, 2020. Hi, I'm Troy Clarity. Great to have you with us. Hope that you're having a great day. Hope we can uh, do whatever we can to make it even better for you. We'll talk some serious stuff, but we'll have a lot of fun along the way, as we usually do during the show. And as hinted at, our special guest on this week's TreeCast is a proud Stanford graduate, and he is helping to lead the Pac-12 through some uncharted waters in a lot of different ways. Jamie Zaninovich, the Pac-12 Deputy Commissioner and the Chief Operating Officer. I'm looking forward to getting his thoughts on just, just all the stuff he's dealing with right now, with uh, college sports being in some positions that it is in, with some, some student-athlete empowerment issues that have cropped up, especially over the last week and some other places around the country. And nobody by the way, there's a coronavirus pandemic that everyone's trying to figure out how to best proceed forward. So we'll talk with him about that. And oh, by the way, Jamie also had a huge hand in founding something called the Sixth Man Club for Stanford men's basketball. So I definitely want to get his thoughts on that. Looking forward to uh, having that conversation coming up in just a few minutes. Plus uh, three things you need to know about Stanford athletics right now and a, a graduation message from the TreeCast, but I'm not going to be able to do it with any sort of justice. I'll have an actual real-life professional provide that graduation message. You'll hear that coming up in just a few minutes. Thanks again for checking us out. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Troy Clarity. The last name is spelled C-L-A-R-D-Y. Got thoughts on the show? The best way for me to see them is on Twitter and give it the hashtag TreeCast. Hashtag TreeCast. And thanks for being with us here. Thanks to the Believe Podcast Network for giving the show a home. In late February, we uh, did our first episode, uh, first week of March, and then everything went to heck. <laughs> but it's been great to have the Believe Podcast Network uh, with us uh, when we've expanded the show in ways that, quite honestly, I did not expect us to be uh, going in uh, when this uh, show began on the on the Believe Podcast Network uh, back in uh, late February and in early March. So uh, great to have them aboard with us. If you've missed any of the earlier chats, I highly suggest you check out The Vault. More on that coming up in just a moment or so. Three things you need to know around Stanford Athletics Right now, that's how we start every show. And we start with three things with number one. Well, it's one of my favorite events of the year, every single year. It's the Stanford Athletics Board Awards. And they were held last week, clearly in a virtual ceremony in this day and age. They can't hold it at uh, Bing Concert Hall like they have the last a couple of years or so. But the Stanford Athletics Board Awards were held last week in a virtual ceremony among the winners... Katie Meyer of Stanford Women's Soccer and Ben Halleck of Stanford Men's Water Polo shared the Bob Murphy Award for an unforgettable performance in an athletic contest securing a place in Stanford Athletics history. Now, Halleck scored the winning goal um, in a sudden victory, in sudden victory overtime to beat USC in the NCAA semis. Now, Stanford went on to win the championship in men's water polo. Then, hours later in San Jose, 
Meyer came up big in penalty kicks in a national championship match against North Carolina, helped Stanford win its national championship, and broke the internet in the process. So those two sharing the Bob Murphy Award, the Spirit of Stanford Award won by men's basketball's Oscar Da Silva, and women's volleyball's Adriana Fitzmorris. Uh, that award given to the athletes who excel in sport and show effective leadership away from competition. Football's Casey Tuhill, winner of the Jake Gimble Award for Best Competitive Attitude. Not surprised there. And Al, the Al Masters Award, which is the highest individual award that is uh, given out by the Stanford Athletics Board. Uh, the Al Masters Award for attaining the highest standards of athletic performance, leadership, and academic achievement. Ben Halleck of Men's Water Polo and Katarina Macario of women's soccer. What a treat she is to watch. Maybe the best player, individual player, not just in women's college soccer, but in all of college soccer, period. Can't wait to see her back on the pitch very, very soon. So many other fantastic uh, uh, student athletes represented at the uh, Stanford Athletics Board. Uh, for, for, the, uh, for the full list, head to gostanford.com. Uh, congratulations to all involved for having fantastic seasons and helping to keep Stanford as the home of champions. Let's move on to number two. Well, the Major League Baseball draft was held last week, and no Stanford draftees. Much of that is a function, of course, of the draft going from its normal 40 rounds to just five this year. David Esker, the Stanford baseball head coach, and I talked about that uh, when uh, he joined us on the show last month. But uh, just five rounds in the draft this year, and uh, there were no Stanford draftees. And it's the first time that no Stanford players have been called in the Major League Baseball draft since 1971, and only the second time in Major League Baseball draft history that that has ever happened. Guys like Tim Tawa and Jacob Polish and Brendan Beck, um, those guys given opportunities to uh, sign with Major League Baseball teams or potentially return to school and uh, come back for the 2021 baseball seasons. As I say this, no word on what uh, either of those young men uh, or any of the uh, other uh, Stanford baseball uh, eligible draftees um, have elected to do at this point. But uh, no Stanford names called in the Major League Baseball draft in almost 50 years. A lot of history being made in Major League Baseball this year, and a lot of it isn't good. Let's wrap it up with number three. Well, that being said, Stanford could be represented in the NBA draft this year. NBA draft normally held later on this month. That's been moved to October the 15th. Tyrell Terry, as many of you know, declared for the NBA draft after a terrific freshman season, winner of, of all freshman honors in the Pac-12 conference and also all Pac-12 honors as well. Uh, teams have been meeting with uh, Tyrell virtually, and some have given out IQ tests during the course of their meetings with Tyrell. And according to USA Today, Terry's results broke records in a positive way. So that could increase his stock just a bit. Oh, by the way, USA Today's mock draft has uh, Tyrell Terry going 16th overall to Minnesota. That was the latest on mock draft from USA Today. The date to withdraw from the draft is uh, either August 3rd or 10 days after the, gom uh, after the combine. Now, keep in mind, there may not be an NBA draft combine this year. So uh, Tyrell Terry still has some time to figure it out. He's still got, uh, at, at the very least, 
about six weeks or so to decide whether he wants to stay in the NBA draft or return to Stanford. I'm sure Jared Hass and the crew would welcome him back with open arms and, and make Stanford even potentially more dangerous in the upcoming season. Which way will Tyrell Terry go? I'm not sure. But either way, I'm pretty sure he's going to make the right decision and the smart decision. Yeah, high IQ test. Highest they've ever that some folks have ever seen. Of course he's going to make the smart decision. Come on now. Stanford we're talking. Those are three things. A chat with Jamie Zaninovich, who is intertwined with some of the great moments in Stanford men's basketball history as uh, he was helping to run the show for that program from a operations, from an operations and a marketing standpoint, particularly in the late 90s. I'm looking forward to getting some of Jamie's thoughts uh, coming up in just a few minutes or so. Uh, but first, this past Sunday was graduation day. And even though there was no in-person commencement ceremony, even though Stanford Stadium was was closed to the public, uh, no one no one filed into the stadium, got a chance to sit under the, the hot Sunday morning sun, and no one got a chance to do a, a, a wacky walk. Uh, to begin the festivities. Do they still do that? I haven't been at a Stanford commencement ceremony since since my own, and that was, that was a long time ago. But even though there was no in-person commencement ceremony, of course, it was still done uh, virtually. Congratulations to all the Stanford student-athletes who now have that piece of paper hanging on their wall, and that in all likelihood is going to take them a long, long way going forward. One of the great accomplishments uh, that all those uh, young men and women uh, can point to, no matter what else they achieve um, in their chosen fields of competition, and no matter what else they achieve in life. A few weeks ago, it was an honor to be joined by Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey, Stanford class of 91. He actually gave Stanford's commencement speech a few years ago. So I, I could give you my graduation message, um, but I'm, I'm going to leave it in the hands of a professional. Uh, you might remember, I asked Senator Booker for what his message, commencement message to folks would be this year, especially considering that, that there were no big ceremonies. There was no big pomp and circumstance that we see during the course of a normal year. So when, when folks don't have the ending to their academic and, in some cases, athletic careers that they would have preferred. What's Senator Booker's message to them? Let's revisit that. Cory Booker joining us on the TreeCast back on May 26th. You just got to remember that what happens to you in life, that's not where your power lies. The stimulus of what happens, your power lies in your response, in how you choose to respond. And um, the for me, the end of football felt like my first life failure. I, I was, it was like it hit me with a two by four. And the, but it was a gift. I think the universe, I think God showing me that even in the depths of what you think is the worst imaginable thing that can happen to you, there are gifts, there are possibilities. And indeed, I would have never applied for a Rhodes Scholarship uh, if, if that door didn't close. I would never have discovered a lot of new opportunities that carried me in exciting directions. So I showed up through that time of, 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 of the, the struggling with the feelings of failure and the feelings of, 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 of loss. Um, but at the same time, I, I never stopped looking 
uh, for the good, looking for the possibility, understanding that, uh, that in this darkness, I had in, with, in, inside of me an inextinguishable, an invincible, an unconquerable light. And that's what I see now all the time in, uh, in, in this country, is, as people are facing wretchedness and death and pain, seeing their livelihoods crumble before their eyes. Um, I, I still see such heroism of people modeling what it means to be a light worker, still helping, still fighting, still not giving up. Um, and uh, that kind of grit and guts, uh, I, I was gifted by my football experiences. And I hope that no matter you're an athlete or not during these times, understand that you know, hope uh, is the active conviction that despair will not have the last word. Do not let the circumstances have the last word. You respond, you show up, uh, you give a testimony to, in the midst of the trial. Well said, as usual, from the senator. Now, now that was taped uh, just before things started to take a turn nationwide into what the current set of uh, national headlines um, have become and, uh, and have developed into. But, but the message remains the same. Don't let the circumstances that you might be in define you. And in all, in all instances, be kind and do the right thing. So I, I figured that was, was worth revisiting, that little portion of our conversation. You want to hear the whole thing. I, I highly suggest it. A lot of it still applies, even though that conversation is about three weeks old or so. Uh, hit the uh, TreeCast vault on the Believe Podcast Network. Um, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, tune in anywhere you get your favorite uh, podcast from. Check out the TreeCast Vault. That particular episode is the A Garden State of Mind episode, and that also featured uh, Brevin Knight, which was another phenomenal interview. Uh, so I highly suggest that you uh, go back and revisit um, that chat and that episode if you haven't before. Uh, so many other great guests we've had so far uh, during this course of uh, this spring with um, David Shaw, Jared Hass. Casey Tuhill, Colby Parkinson, a couple of Stanford uh, football draftees. Uh, Brevin Knight, as mentioned. Mark Madsen joined us in early April. Uh, Kyle Peterson, the Stanford All-American pitcher, who is now the lead voice for ESPN's coverage of college baseball. He's also been able to call some things baseball-wise over the course um, of the summer. Uh, we, we've had some pretty good guests. I'm, I'm pretty, I, I put our guest record up against anyone else's uh, right now, especially over the last couple of months. So uh, check out our previous conversations. I highly suggest uh, that you do so whenever you can. And let us add another distinguished name to our guest list here on the TreeCast with Troy Clarity. The Pac-12 is, of course, the Conference of Champions. Of course it is. So it's only fitting that the Conference of Champions is led in part by a guy who hails from the home of champions. Stanford Athletics uh, stylizing itself as the home of champions, and rightfully so. And a Stanford grad has a prominent seat at the Pac-12's table of leadership. He is the COO and the deputy commissioner of the Pac-12 Conference, and he's also Stanford class of 93. Always a pleasure to uh, have a chat with Jamie Zaninovich. Jamie, thanks a bunch. Appreciate the time. How are you doing today? Troy, no problem. It's great to see you. Glad you're doing okay in this shelter in place and um, appreciate the opportunity to be on. 
Yeah, yeah, it's been a it's been a whole different way of life over the last few months, as as you are well aware. Um, how have the last few months been overall uh, for the Pac-12 as it negotiates and navigates its way through through ra- everything that seems to be rapidly changing? It seems week by week and day by day. Yeah, the way I've described it is, um, I, I never thought I'd be so busy without uh, any events uh, going on, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it has been busy. It's been a, it's been actually a really good process. Though obviously we're in we're in the midst of a crisis, but um, you know I think we're involved in uh, you know, a lot of communication, a lot of planning. Uh, I think we're feeling pretty optimistic about the fall. Knock on wood. There's no certainty, obviously, but um, we've really had great alignment. We have uh, you know almost daily calls with our athletic directors. We've been in touch with our presidents and our board on an annual on a on an ongoing basis. Uh, our basketball coaches are meeting regularly, football coaches, coaches in other sports. So, uh, you know, people have a lot of time right now because we can't be out and about. Uh, and we also have a lot of uncertainty. So it's important as, as, a, uh, as a conference that we communicate not only with our membership, but our external partners, our TV partners, our goal partners and others, just to keep them updated on, on the prospects and make sure that everybody's in, in conversation and having uh, their answers in as much as we know them or their questions as much as we know them answered. So it's actually been a nice process. I think it's brought people together in some respects. Um, but we still certainly have have a lot to do. It's always amazed me the dance that that senior leadership commissioners on your level, athletic directors at the university level, uh, the dance that has to be done between what's best for the student athlete, what's best for the member institutions, what's best for uh, the fans, what's best for the broadcast partners. Uh, you you're previously a commissioner yourself at the West Coast Conference. Kind of take us through the dance that needs to be done to satisfy all of those various parties as best as you possibly can. Yeah, when I became a commissioner before, someone uh, I said to someone, well, it's sort of like uh, steering. I had eight schools in our conference or or 10, I guess, by the time I left, 10. It's trying to, it's sort of like trying to steer 10 battleships. And someone said, so a fellow commissioner said, no, it's trying, it's like trying to steer 10 battleships in a bathtub. Uh, so it is a very uh, sort of complicated governance structure, but it really just has everything to do with communication. We have different levels of folks on campus. Um, you know, we report to a board, which are CEOs, our presidents of the universities, but we work on a day-to-day basis with our athletic directors, our senior women's administrators, and really importantly, our faculty. In our case, we have a student-athlete group as well, a group called SALT. So we have student-athletes in our actual governance structure. And that's, you know, creates a, a great mix of perspectives. And, you know, with uh, a lot of compromise and a lot of discussion, I think we end up in, in a good place. And we're very fortunate the Pac-12 to have such well-aligned universities in terms of the philosophy of college athletics and what it means on, on the campus and what it means to the institution uh, and how uh, we interact with student athletes. Uh, so all those things are, 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 are really give us, give us great alignment, but certainly it's a, it's a lot of communication. It's a lot of doubling back. It's a lot of making sure that everybody's on the same page before we go forward, because uh, what some people may not know is that we don't get a vote in the conference office. Nothing is done without a vote of either our board or our council. So uh, everything we do are teeing up recommendations. It's interesting you bring up the student athlete uh, pro- uh, part of it as far as having as far as them having a voice, and we've certainly seen that uh, throughout the course of this week in in response to some of the national news that we've seen over the last couple of weeks, and we've seen uh, that, that student athletes are, are realizing and not just realizing, but perhaps utilizing uh, their voices now than maybe perhaps that we've ever seen. Uh, as far as the student athletes, our relationship between uh, in, in the whole college sports uh, relationship is concerned. Uh, how do you view when you look and see what's happening at places like Oklahoma State, and Texas, and and, and Clemson, and, and and Florida State? 
when you look and see what's happening with student athletes utilizing their voices in ways that we haven't seen before and with a volume that we haven't seen before, how do you view that uh, as a conference administrator yourself? I think I, I speak on behalf of the, of the whole, con I speak personally and I think on behalf of the whole conference when I say we really support that. You know, we think that being a, a student uh, is about um, uh, understanding how, how you apply your voice in our society, how you apply your voice for, for meaningful uh, causes that, that you cherish um, as part of your, your maturation. Uh, you know, we've had um, student athletes uh, kneel in certain sports during the national anthem historically, soccer and others. Uh, we've certainly never had any policies that uh, that um, discourage that. And if ever asked, we really just say, you know, it's everybody's personal choice and it's managed at the campus level, but we really support freedom of expression for everybody. Uh, but certainly student athletes, because it's such, uh, they have such an important platform. Uh, and they're also at such an important time of their life uh, where they're really discovering the influence they have uh, to make positive change. And so we, we really encourage uh, student athletes to use their voice in that way. And uh, you know, this conference has a history of that, whether it's Jackie Robinson or Arthur Ashe, uh, you know, going back, we have had change makers in this conference that have used their platforms uh, in athletics within uh, the college context and beyond to make a positive difference in society. So uh, we really th see that thought leadership as something that is a special part of the Pac-12 culture. Navigating through that name, image, and likeness kind of came into a bit more of a focus over the course of the last couple of months or so and kind of came, uh, that, that picture sort of became clear over the last couple of months as well. Uh, your initial thoughts on how that could possibly change things? Yeah, I think we're, you know, we definitely support the sort of modernization uh, of college athletics, right? I think uh, it's very clear that the time is, time is right to think about how we can uh, be more progressive in the way we, we structure our roles and certainly uh, student athletes benefiting from um, their name, image, and likeness is is part of that. Uh, I think there are a couple of key principles for us. We think it's really important to have a national model. Um, you know, we have a lot of states now creating certain laws, and uh, they're different in every state. So that's that's one reason why we think it's important. And the NCAA has shown uh, signal this as well, and started to have those conversations as well. But as long as there's a national model, and we can all agree on. Uh, the way it works best to serve the needs of the, of the student athletes that can take advantage of it. I think um, we're hopeful with certain parameters involved um, that we can create a model that, that, that does create some benefit for the student athletes. So, uh, you know, we are not a, a quick moving governance structure, um, right? It's a very diverse, a lot of different voices. We talked about that within a conference level, you know, uh, that's just our one conference. Amplify that by, you know, a thousand schools and multiple divisions of NCAA, all of which are different shapes, sizes, different regions, different philosophies. Um, and, and it takes a while to sometimes get the, uh, the meat through the meat grinder. But um, we're certainly dedicated to being part of the solution. Of course, those have been two major issues throughout the last uh, couple months or so. And oh, by the way, we're in the middle of a pandemic, uh, the likes of which we certainly haven't seen in, in our lifetimes and at least in a hundred years in this country. Uh, take, take us back to, I'm sure you were in Vegas, Pac-12 men's basketball tournament had just gotten underway. The first night uh, had just been completed. Take us through the process of what the Pac-12 went through in first shutting down the basketball tournament, and then by the end of the next day, pulling the plug on spring sports as a whole. Yeah, it was really a, a pretty uh, surreal process now that we think about it. We showed up in Las Vegas. We, we had our women's basketball tournament in Las Vegas the week prior, and we had put in 
a lot of different protocols from how we manage handshake lines to cleaning and sanitization uh, in that event at the Mandalay Bay Center with our, our MGM partners who are great partners. And we, we got through that seemingly on phase. We weren't sure about our men's tournament, but we have a, we have a Pac-12 medical advisory group that is a group of doctors that we've been working with for a number of years that we transitioned to our COVID advisory group and they were advising us on all this. So we went into Las Vegas in our men's tournament that Monday feeling pretty good. We had checked with other colleagues in other conferences and things seemed to be tracking on Tuesday night. We were fully prepared to play the full tournament with fans in the stands. Uh, by the time we woke up uh, Wednesday, things had changed a little bit, but not a lot. We got into the games Wednesday and then, you know, Wednesday night, I think two things happened. One, the Rudy Gobert situation, the positive test, and then the Fred Hoiberg situation in Nebraska, where uh, thankfully for, for Coach Hoiberg, it wasn't um, – COVID, but certainly this this optic of him on the bench, very sick, I think brought to life, um, you know, the risks associated with it. So by Wednesday night, the NBA had 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 made their, their decision um, and we were uh, still putting into place a, a plan with limited fans uh, for Thursday. So we got up Thursday and, and had a limited fan model in place. And then in more conversation with our national colleagues, some other conferences, it became very clear that um, what we're hearing about the virus is a virus, what we had uh, learned from our, our friends at the NBA, that it just, that the risks were too great. Uh, and so on Thursday, we made the very difficult decision. It was, it was painful, certainly, for to take away those opportunities from the student athletes. But I think in, in, in hindsight, the right thing to do to shut down the tournament, really in concert with the other leagues. We all were talking to each other and everybody pretty much did it simultaneously. Uh, we are in consultation with our presidents, our board, the entire time. And then soon after that, we convened uh, a joint meeting of our, our athletic director and our board, and the decision was made to recommend shutting down all spring sports. We just felt it was it, it was too risky at that point with all the uncertainty, um, with, with teams getting on planes, not sure whether they should be traveling or not. Um, some campuses thinking about closing at that point already. And again, you never know at the time, but in hindsight, I think it was likely the right call um, to, to keep everybody out of harm's way. The shelters in place in most of our markets happened, happened literally days after that. So it was all really in unison. It was an unfortunate thing. You never want to take a great experience like that away from student athletes. But, um, you know, 2020 will certainly go down in history. Yeah, certainly will. I got to get to a Pac-12 uh, basketball tournament, men's and women's down in <laughs> Vegas one of these days. Um, what have the effects uh, been on the Pac-12 as a direct result of the coronavirus pandemic? Well, so far, we've only lost our spring season. Um, you know, I think, I think the broad impacts are student athletes that are uh, in a routine in a lot of their training, whether it's spring sports student athletes that didn't get to complete their seasons, which is, again, a very unfortunate thing and something that I think for anybody who's been around college athletics, there's a lot of empathy for those, those kids. Uh, to summer activity that would have been ramped up to spring practice for, 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 for uh, a non-championship seasons like football. So from, from our perspective, you know, the, the first and foremost is there are a lot of student athletes that have been affected by this. You know, they're, and a lot of them are struggling with, with reintegration. Uh, you know, you think about someone who's an elite basketball player or volleyball player or soccer player who has literally spent every week of their life, maybe some stage four or five training to be elite in this sport. And all of a sudden it's turned off. I talked to one player who played uh, in our basketball tournament uh, who lives in the New York area. And in talking to him, uh, you know, being in New York, such a shutdown, he said that uh, after the Pac-12 tournament ended, he flew right back to New York and literally has not picked up a ball with a hoop since early March. 
that's not only uh, sort of disruptive to routine physical training, but, but mentally that really wears on student athletes. So we're very mindful of, uh, of that issue. Um, you know, alternatively, um, you know, there's been some financial impact, but most of the financial, financial impact is really related to football. So we're very focused uh, in terms of health and safety and the financial impact on the conference of, uh, of the fall season and, and what that means for football. Yeah, hypothetical. I hope it stays a hypothetical, but a student athlete or a coach test positive in season. Any initial indication on what the process is for that particular program and maybe for some of the other particular schools that, that might be affected as well? Yeah, we're still working through it. Like I said, we're very fortunate to have these team of elite infectious disease experts and epidemiologists and sports doctors from all of our campuses that have been working on our protocols um, for testing, for contact tracing, and otherwise. Uh, we're still working through that process. There's certainly a Pac-12 process, and then there's a national process, and, and both are important because we need to make sure we can ensure the environments uh, when we play each other. We need to make sure we can ensure the environments we play in the non-conference. Those are important games. So uh, luckily, time is is still you know in, in our favor. If you look even a couple weeks ago compared to now, we've learned an awful lot uh, and we feel like we're much more prepared now than we were two weeks ago to be ready for the season. So uh, in two more weeks, we'll know even more. Um, and, and as those plans evolved, I think we're confident that we'll, we'll end up with a national, a national plan that will, that will satisfy what is the single most important issue, which is assuring the health and safety of everybody involved in the games. Yeah, kind of along those lines, what do you feel better about now with this whole entire situation? And, and what do you still have question marks about as, as of this point? Yeah, I think one of the big concerns early was just how our, our schools would approach the fall um, quarter or semester. Uh, there's a lot of speculation of what that would look like. And I think, you know, our schools have done a lot of good work to sort of come up with plans of how they're going to get their, maybe not all at once, but get their students back to campus. Certainly that was a, a key issue for us, right? If we're going to bring student athletes back to campus, it needs to be part of a, of a student body plan. Um, so I think we feel a lot better about that. Uh, you know, the UC system making their announcement um, of being back is, is so important for us. Those are large state schools and everybody looks towards. Uh, but really, you know, in parallel, a lot of our schools have, have had similar plans. So that, that gives us optimism. I think that the trend lines in terms of testing and managing uh, the virus to the best of our ability are, are leaning in the right direction. Uh, we're seeing more availability of testing, more quality of testing, which will be uh, a very important element for us to have. So I think those trend lines are, are, are favorable. We also have some consensus um, of when uh, uh, sports can might be able to return to activity and how that works. Uh, you know, just yesterday was the first day we were allowed to have student athletes back on campus on a voluntary basis. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, many of our campuses, not all, but many are, are inviting students back in a sequenced way. And that seems to be going well. We're hearing stories that they're, they're back on campus, they're working out, uh, very strict system set up for how they social distance and how they manage sanitation and cleaning and, and uh, the student athletes seem to really understand that. So, so that gives us optimism. Um, you know, are there gonna be hiccups? Absolutely. It's not gonna, be a, not gonna be a perfect scenario. It's not gonna be a turn on the light switch. It's gonna be a dimmer as the analogy says, but, uh, but I think the trend lines in general are positive. So is it safe to assume that it's all fall sports that are in the same boat and not just football? Football, obviously driving the bus here, but uh, is it safe to assume that it's all fall sports that are kind of in the same situation here? Or are there different considerations that need to be made for the soccers and for the volleyballs as well? 
Uh, there's no different consideration based on the timing of the sports season. There are different considerations based on the nature of the sport. So I think, you know, the, the advice we've gotten from our doctors is that the way we treat uh, a reintegration plan for something like tennis or golf versus football or basketball are different just because of the nature of the sport and the closeness of activity. But that's really how, how the line has been drawn. It hasn't been drawn seasonally. Uh, we certainly wouldn't bring back one sport and not, and not the others. Any initial thoughts on effects on the hoop season? You're a basketball guy. Basketball is huge. This would be a great Pac-12 season coming up for, uh, for both men's and women's hoops. Uh, any initial thoughts on the potential effects on the basketball season, especially considering that a lot of the schools readjusting their, their academic calendars to make sure that everyone's off campus by Thanksgiving, which is when college hoops usually gets into the real swing of things. Any initial thoughts on uh, how this could eventually uh, affect the, the basketball seasons? Yeah, I mean, luckily we even have more time for basketball than they do for football. So I think it's, we don't want to speculate too much. We do have a scenario planning group for basketball that's going through issues as simple as, you know, when should we expect student athletes to be on campus for summer activity? Because the rules allow student athletes to do summer activity in, in men's and women's basketball. Uh, recruiting calendars need to be adjusted. Most of that recruiting happens in July, evaluating uh, next sort of crop of recruits. And we have a dead period for recruiting through July 1st. So a lot of our discussion has been on that. In terms of the schedules now, the season runs, I mean, we're, we're very hopeful and expect to, to have a full, a full schedule in. Uh, that being said, you know, if we don't, we'll have contingency plans to, to adjust as necessary and um, get, as, get, get as much of it in as we can to make sure that we create, a, again, a, a great, great and healthy and safe experience for the student athletes. All right, let's get to some fun stuff here. Uh, your career in athletics uh, started at Stanford, uh, men's basketball marketing and operations director back in 1996. Uh, you were there for your first time around at Stanford uh, for a few years, 96 to 99. That just happened to coincide with a pretty darn good era of basketball at Maples Pavilion uh, for Stanford men's hoops. Uh, what stands out about that experience with you. Take me back to that era as, as you were watching that program and helping that program achieve some of the things that it did back in the late 90s. Yeah, I do think it was really a special time for the basketball program at Stanford then. I think what I remember most are just the people involved and the leadership we had on those teams. You know, I think of the late Pete Sauer, for example, who was a captain of those teams. Guys like Artley, Chris Weems, uh, you know, before them, Brevin Knight, who really sort of set the table, all of whom are still in contact in a very meaningful way. Uh, there was just great leadership among that group and great buy-in for, for sort of collective goals. Uh, and then I think, you know, the other thing that, that, um, that I think I remember is just how captivated the campus became. Uh, you know, we had an incredible student turnout. Um, the six-man club was, you know, Maples was sort of a feared place because of that student group. And I think that was a testament to the, to the guys. I mean, they were not only very good, and we were number one in the country and on the cover of Sports Illustrated, but, you know, we had a great coach and Coach Montgomery. And we had, we had guys that took great pride in sort of um, their Stanford experience, not only as basketball players, but as, but as students and leaders on campus. And, you know, I remember looking across the six-man club and, you know, it was it was dorm mates and roommates of, of those guys on the team. And, um, and you could see that, see that bond and uh, feels like, you know, coach Hass is, is sort of building that again. Hopefully I know there's a lot of optimism around the program and certainly um, you know, I talked to Jared a lot and, and offer my support and hopefully they can, they can get it back to, to that heyday, but it was certainly a special time.
Yeah, no doubt about that. Um, you you got to tell me your best and perhaps wildest story involving the Sixth Man Club, because that was certainly something under, under your, your direct oversight back in those days when I, I quite honestly think that Stanford men's basketball for a time was the hottest ticket in the Bay Area. What's your best and your wildest Sixth Man Club story? Well, of those that I can share, um, <laughs> I, th I think I think the best memory was um, after the 97-98 season, we had five returning starters, uh, and we were uh, ranked number one in the country by Sports Illustrated and on the cover of Sports Illustrated. And we planned our normal camp out uh, for tickets and, and first sort of sixth man club event where the students would generally come the day of, line up a couple hundred deep, and we'd have an open practice, and they'd come in and, you know, get their sign up for their t-shirt and their, and their special seating and their, and their other benefits. And so we, we planned that. And, and I looked out the window of my office one day, seven days before uh, that event, a full week. And there was, there were tents being set up. So we had, we ended up with a camp out. Uh, and after two days, there were almost, I think 2000 kids in line. And uh, we got calls from the president's office. They were getting calls from parents saying, why is my kid out, you know, sleeping in a tent for basketball? And we quickly got the calls and we had to come up with a solution. So we, we got some help from some student leaders, uh, thankfully, Stanford student leaders, to help us think about how we could sort of count who everybody was in line after two nights. I think we, we sent them home and said, come back and we'll have a, a lottery process for your tickets. But I remember there were... There were mattresses from the dorms out there. There were barbecues out there. There were portable stereos out there. It was like a big party. Um, and it, it was once exciting and, uh, and it, in other respect, frightening. But, uh, but I think that was probably one of my best, best memories of that group. Yeah, didn't someone like tap into the Maples power supply or something like that to help power up their appliances in, the, in line? I think there was a story about that. Someone, uh, someone got an extension cord through the, through the <laughs> fence and had a, a disco ball in their tent or something. Uh, Stanford kids, so resourceful. A couple last things uh, for you here. Uh, and, and taking off taking off your Pac-12 hat for a moment or so and putting on your Stanford alumni hat. Uh, Stanford closing up uh, another fantastic decade of wonderful athletic accomplishments, football reaching heights um, that it had never reached ever in the history of that program. Um, men's soccer winning three, winning three straight national championship, women's soccer uh, doing fantastic things as well, women's volleyball, just, just up and down the board, down the line. Uh, fantastic turnout and fantastic results for Stanford Athletics uh, from program to program. What do you make of what Stanford has been able to accomplish and to keep going throughout what it's been able to do for, for, the, for much of its history over the past decade or so? I, I think it's just remarkable. I mean, you know, um, and, Andy Geiger, then Ted Leland, Bob Bowlesby, and now Bernard uh, Muir have just shown incredible leadership. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's an institution that I think, uh, you know, the athletics program has such peer pressure in some respects, in a good way, to reflect the excellence of the rest of the campus uh, and the quality of sort of well-rounded individual that it both attracts and develops, that uh, the outcomes just sort of pour forth from that culture and the people involved uh, in a really special way. And, um, and certainly I think, you know, I think Stanford is a, is a leader in college athletics. And I think uh, the success of the football program is a real key in that having a leader like David Shaw, I think cannot be understated. Um, you know, Stanford back when I was there, you know, candidly had a reputation of being a great uh, sports university and blending athletics and education excellence, uh, but did not always have consistent football results. And now that that's happened, I think it even puts Stanford at a different plane. Um, at a different level of um, 
influence and responsibility for leadership in college athletics at a time where we certainly have a lot of challenges. And it's just great to see from, from President uh, Tessie Levine to uh, all the head coaches, including uh, David Shaw, Tara Vanderveer, Jared, you know, on down the line, um, David Esker to, to Bernard Muir and his administration that um, it attracts a, the type of person that really um, believes in that, believes in that responsibility and leadership and, uh, you know, show, show up and are counted for it every day. So it's uh, mm -hmm. certainly Stanford's a, an important part of the Pac-12 and, and for me personally, an important part of my, of my history and my, uh, and my alumni status. So, um, you know, we, we treat all 12 similarly in the Pac-12, but certainly uh, I'll never forget my Stanford roots. All right, as we wrap this up, take your Stanford alumni hat off, put the Pac-12 hat back on. We talked a lot about challenges throughout the course of this chat, and there's no doubt that there are many of them, but I'd imagine that there are also opportunities for the Pac-12 as well. Uh, what sort of opportunities are on the horizon in the near future with the conference that excites you the most right now? Yeah, I think one of the things is, you know, with all the anti-racism and social justice issues that have been brought to the forefront um, in, uh, in a um, humbling but uh, really important way in the past couple of weeks and months in, in the United States, we're very focused on, a, on our own anti-racism, anti-hate social justice plan, which, which we're going to be working on with our membership. I'm really excited about that because I think, again, going back to some of the icons in this conference, uh, there's a real... Uh, culture there where we can really affect some positive change, not only with our student athletes, but our institutions. And, and I really think in society writ large. So uh, that's, that's really exciting for us. I think anytime you have a crisis like, like COVID-19, it gives you an opportunity to sort of unpack things and look at everything differently, whether that's our schedules or our TV partnerships or otherwise. So I'm excited about sort of, um, you know, breaking open those molds and seeing, you know, how we can put those, build those, those, those maybe even better mousetraps. So I think those are the things I'm focused on. I'm focused on the most. It's a, you know, it's a, it's at once an anxious time, but also an exciting time. And you got to use these opportunities uh, when people are sort of forced to change to figure out how you can change for the better. And I think we can take a leadership position in that. We have a lot of great people uh, in our organization and the membership and our conference office that are, that are aligned in that, in that belief. So, uh, you know, when, when you can get past some of the, some of the, the concerns about what life may look like with COVID-19 and, and get past some of the messaging that clouds our judgment, there's certainly a lot of opportunities there. Yeah, no doubt about that. Intriguing times ahead, uh, especially for the Pac-12 and especially across uh, college sports in its entirety. And one guy who's going to be helping to lead the charge for the Pac-12, Deputy Commissioner and COO and Stanford Class of 93, Jamie Zaninovich. Jamie, always appreciate the time. Looking forward to bumping to you at some point soon, hopefully down the road. Uh, stay safe, stay healthy. Appreciate the time, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for having me on, Troy. I look forward to getting together in person when we can. Yeah, can't wait. Can't wait. Our thanks again to Jamie Zaninovich, the COO and Deputy Commissioner of the Pacific 12 Conference for joining us. He's a, wait, he's a, he's an old KZSU guy, if I remember correctly. I'm, I'm an old KZSU guy myself. I should have asked him about that. Uh, I can't believe I, I'm just now remembering Remembering to do so, but uh, glad that uh, he could join us. Of course, full, disclo full disclosure, I am also a uh, Pac-12 Network play-by-play -play announcer, as, as many of you know. So uh, great to uh, chat with uh, someone who's on the opposite side um, of the building and up on the third floor. 
uh, from the uh, Pac-12 Network Studios in the building over on 3rd Street in San Francisco. Uh, I'm really glad that he could uh, share with us some thoughts on on the Sixth Man Club. <laughs> Boy, look, when the Sixth Man Club was at the peak of its powers, I honestly believe that it was probably one of the top three student sections across any sport in the country back when it was at its peak. And what was it, about 98, 99 or so, UCLA was in town. And uh, Jelani McCoy, who played for the Bruins at the time, um, had been recently heading into that game, um, caught partaking in a certain substance that was much more illegal then than it is now. And uh, of course, the six-man club seizing on the opportunity. And as soon as the as soon as the gates of Maple's Pavilion opened, uh, six-man club rushed into the building to take their uh, positions along the sideline. And uh, they brought in was it a, a rolled up um, a, a five-foot-long bed sheet rolled up uh, to resemble um, the substance that <laughs> McCoy had been caught partaking in. They started cheering. <laughs> they, they went after him pretty hard. I, I still can't tell that story without laughing. Jelani McCoy was smiling too and waving his arms at the six-man club and saying, hey, bring it on, bring it on. <laughs> six-man club as good as it got. And uh, Stanford men's basketball during that era was as good as it got. Hopefully both entities are, are rising and rebounding together. Um, next season but uh, glad that uh, Jamie could talk with us about that and, uh, and and what it's like I mean he's he's been a conference commissioner was the West Coast Conference Commissioner for years I'm interested to see how any of potential effects on the basketball season could have on those basketball heavy conferences like the West Coast um, the Big East and, and, and other conferences around the country. I'm interested to, to see what those potential effects might be. And, and look, let's face it, you know, ev every commissioner gets their share of slings and arrows for the most part. Larry Scott, not immune, obviously. Rob Manfred from Major League Baseball Commissioner, he's who he's really taken it this week and, and appears rightfully so. Uh, not easy, though. Not easy to do that dance to make sure that all parties are, are, are well satisfied. So glad that Jamie could give us that perspective. And to uh, give us a little insight into uh, some of the things that uh, that the Pac-12 has on this table. And look, the Pac-12 has done some, they've been ahead of the curve on, on, on a lot of things, uh, specifically from the uh, student, um, uh, student athlete uh, welfare initiatives with the, uh, especially in mental health. Uh, I know Oregon State has helped lead the way there with their, their Damn Worth It Foundation. They've done terrific work with uh, making sure that uh, the mental health of the student-athletes is uh, taken into consideration. Uh, something that really, what, like five, ten years ago what was, was an afterthought at best. But Pac-12 has done some terrific things in, in, in that department um, and environmental considerations. So uh, looking forward to seeing what they can do, uh, given some of the uh, news headlines that we've seen around the country over the last couple of weeks. Jamie and I have talked about that and uh, seeing what uh, what the Pac-12 comes up with um, in those uh, with those initiatives and in those respects. So uh, glad that Jamie could uh, join us on the show. Glad you could listen. And I always welcome your thoughts on the show, your interactivity. I always welcome it, uh, especially via Twitter, hashtag TreeCast. Hashtag TreeCast. That's the best way to ensure that I see what you have to say about the show, what you have to say about Stanford Athletics, about the Pac-12, uh, and just what you have to say, period. I mean, and hey, I, I always like it when, when I see reaction uh, to this show on the Friendly Neighborhood message boards. Yeah, I, I lurk around a little bit. 
on the on the Stanford uh, message boards and some of the other ones as well. I, I take a peek and I see what's happening. And I always like to see people react to, to these shows as well, you know. And so next time you're you're on your friendly neighborhood Stanford uh, sports message board, hey, you know, re- react to the show that way as well. Say, hey, I, I, I checked out the tree cast and I heard what so-and-so said and I thought it was really interesting. I heard what Clarity said and I think he's a fool. Well, that won't happen often. I mean, I don't bat a thousand. I'm not always right, but I'm pretty close. But you know what I mean. Always great to get the reaction. Um, always great to have uh, the discussion uh, that, that sometimes uh, germinates from the things that we discuss here on this show. So those of you who have uh, given the show love on your friendly neighborhood message boards, I certainly appreciate that. And uh, happy with the download numbers. Uh, Believe is happy with them as well. But always, always looking for ways to get more people into the tent. We come at you every week on the Believe Podcast Network, so we will see you next week. Thanks again to our guest, Jamie Zaninovich, the Deputy Commissioner and COO of the Pacific 12 Conference. Biggest thanks goes out to you, most of all, for being a part of the show. Don't drink and drive. If you do, you're the dumbest person on the planet. If you're out and about, wear a mask. Mask it or casket. I like that. That's kind of catchy. But wear a mask when you're outside, please. We are still dealing with the pandemic, and it's not just about saving your life. It's about saving others as well. And be smart, be safe, be kind, and be listening to the TreeCast. See you next week on the TreeCast with Troy Clarity, presented by the Believe Podcast Network.